what she yeah. said to me was, I don't want to see this incredible talent you have for storytelling go un, you know, unsatisfied. And so I'm putting together a night of one acts where I'm asking the students to direct the plays and I would like you to do the first one. And so she handed me a list of plays that I could choose from. I picked Sorry, Wrong Number because it had a bunch of actors in it. And I love working with actors. And And I directed for the first time. And it was also the last time I ever stepped on stage. Because once I did it, I knew this that I never needed to be on the other side. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs. But there's so much more to this story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huberman. All right, you're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Chad Kennedy. How are you? Hi, Eric. I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me over. Of course. Thanks for coming. So uh, to start out, I assume, you know, the day you're born, you come out, you start, you know, repositioning lights, telling everybody how we got to redo this shot and like... Mm. That's where it started, right? From the beginning. Yeah, hustler from birth. That's yeah. that's my story. A hundred percent. Um yeah, no, you know, I grew up in the Midwest in St. Louis. I had no connections to the entertainment industry except for a great aunt that had done some modeling when she was in her twenties. So, like how many people say the only way you get into the entertainment industry is like you have connections from your family and stuff? Like that cliche. It's, yeah. it's not true. Look, I mean it. I think, and, and we'll, we might get into more of my philosophies around, you know, this industry in general, but I, I think that ultimately there are a lot of things that people accept as being rules. And in reality, they're just kind of, you know, things that are common, but they're nowhere near close to rules. Like the, the real rules are much easier to, to accomplish. And, and, and if you're, if you're creative, you, you'll find them. Yep. Yep. I totally agree. And so yeah. let's take it back from the beginning. You had a great aunt that was a model. Mm-hmm. Is that, yeah. that's what got you in entertainment or like from the, no, child? not at all. No, it's doing. No, well, my, my dad is, uh, is an architect by trade, but an entrepreneur by practice. He, he started his own business when I was like four or five years old and yep. built it from the ground up. And then my mother's a photographer. Cool. Okay. So yeah. you had the creative side in some ways and yeah, started out. So how was your upbringing? Like at an early age, were you, what were you fascinated by? What interested you? Well, you know, it's funny. I, you know, I'm, I'm mixed race, you know, and, uh, and grew up in the Midwest where ca- being categorized was really valuable and important to, to, to your, your popularity and livelihood. And I couldn't easily be categorized and I struggled a lot. I was also a painfully shy person. And so I had a really hard time just kind of making connections with people. And I felt like an alien and I acted like an alien. And so a lot of what was going on when I was a kid was just looking for ways to connect to the world. And what I found was storytelling. You know, I found it in the books that I was reading. I learned how to read at a really young age. I found it in the comic books that I was looking at and the TV shows that I was watching and the movies that I was seeing. Um, storytelling was like giving me a window into how people interacted with each other and gave me an opportunity to experience it in a place that made me feel a little bit more safe, which was largely my imagination. When did that start? At what age were you like started getting into that? I, I don't remember not being in it. Yeah. I mean, I, in fact, you know, there was, so when I was about eight or nine years old, I saw Return of the Jedi for the, for the first time. And it was on a Betamax tape that uh, someone in the family had recorded and handed off to us that they'd gotten off of HBO probably. Yeah. And, um, and so we popped it in and we start watching it and I'm, 
having a really weird experience because the images that I'm seeing are incredibly familiar to me. And they, they had existed in my dreams for like almost a decade, like literally like I'm watching these things happening and, and, and able to predict what was going to happen next. And it was freaking me out. Yeah. And when I raised this with my parents, they said, Oh, well, you know, return of the Jedi was the first movie we took you to at the movie theater. That- and I was like, are you serious? And they said, yeah, we figured you were just going to fall asleep, but you actually just stayed glued to the screen and didn't make a sound. It was one of the best experiences we'd had. I was three years old. That's really cool. So I, so I really don't remember not feeling a connection to storytelling. I just, I, I feel like it's, it's been hardwired into me for as long as I can remember. And so did you, like when you were five, six, seven, when people would say the typical, what do you want to be when you grow up? What were you, your line in the beginning? Something director. Like I wanted to be a director. Yeah, I, Spielberg was was the the north star for me. I, I watched everything that he directed. You know, and at my age, like watching movies that existed before you were born wasn't particularly common, especially in St. Louis. But I watched everything, yeah. and uh, and then I also read every biography that had ever been written about him. And um, and by the way, like there were no new stories. He didn't like talking about his childhood. In fact, if you read any of the interviews that he does about Fablemans, he talks about the fact that his his own story has been something that has been really difficult for him to tell. And so I was reading all of these biographies about Steven Spielberg, hoping to find something new and just finding the same rehash stories over and over again. But I just devoured it. Awesome. And so, so I'm curious, what age were you when it was like, what do you want to be a director? Were you six? Were you seven? Were you 10? Like, yeah, you know? I think I was probably, I think I was probably like 10 years old. Cool. And yeah. were your parents like, sounds great, go for it? <laughs> no. No, but here's what happened was I was, you know, like I said, I was a really shy kid and I didn't have, I didn't have a lot of friends. I didn't really know how to connect with the, you know, the outside world. And I was, and I was a really quiet, introverted person, even, even amongst my family members. Like it was just really hard to get me to come out of my shell. And then in fourth grade, right around the same time, I got cast in the school play as one of the leads. And I, I had a blast. Like, I just really loved being able to stand on stage in front of people and pretend to be somebody I wasn't Yeah. and speaking somebody else's words instead of trying to come up with my own. Like, that was thrilling for me. And it also gave me an opportunity to take all the stuff that had been living in my imagination and allow it to come out. Yeah. And once my parents saw that version of me, they decided they had to kind of you know, encourage anything along those lines just to keep that level of growth going. But I don't think they ever expected me to pursue it as a career. Got it. And so what, when you were in high school, that side of things, was it like, did you get into the drama club? Like what, what, how did you like, when you said, I want to be direct to the, like how you actually started taking action on that, what did that look like? Yeah, I started doing local theater stuff as a, as an actor. I did it like local commercials, industrial videos, radio spots. You know, I'm sure my mom has got all sorts of recordings of things that I've never seen before. And then I was always writing when I was growing up. And, uh, and for some reason in my family, for every Thanksgiving, we'd put on like a family play and, a, and, you know, sometimes, and but I'm talking about when we were really young and I was not the oldest of the cousins. And so it was ridiculous to me that they would let me write these plays, but they did. And so we would do, we would have a blast with those things. And honestly, and so I was always kind of playing in it. Yeah. And those things are so critical because it's like people think, again, it's like got to be like Spielberg taking you under his wing versus just like your cousins who you're comfortable with said you're the one that's going to be the writer. And you just start to think I so for me growing up, I was a guitarist and I'm not good. 
but I, I mean, I'm <laughs> sitting right here, but like, yeah. I'm not a good guitarist, but I thought I was going to grow up to be a guitarist because that's what all my friends and my family thought of me too. And it's like this support thing where they like would encourage me to be on stage and to perform and all these things and took a while to not, you know, at some point you hit that crossroads of whether you're actually talented as well. But right. I think just simple things like that, like your cousins having you write and being a part of it may, gave you that little bit of like extra push, so to speak. Sounds like. Absolutely. Without question. Absolutely. And without question. And, but, and so then I, I just, I, 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 when I had the opportunity to kind of do it with people my own age, with my peers, you know, in a more official capacity, I, I jumped at it. And so like I did the local theater stuff. And then, and then when I was in high school, I did, I joined, uh, I joined the thespian society. I became, you know, a theater brat and I did all the plays and the musicals. And, and then, uh, you know, an interesting thing happened and I'll, I'll, I'll remind you and anyone listening that it was the late nineties when this happened and yeah. I was in the St. Louis, Missouri. So try not to judge anybody in this story too harshly, but the head of our drama program pulled me aside one day and said, you know, Chad, I think you might be one of the most talented actors we have at the school, but no one will ever cast anyone that looks like you as the lead. Um, and I don't want to see a little. Yeah. Aye. Yeah. But Aye. again, there's validity to it. It's like, you just don't go there just because you like you never know like it's someone's dreams like you don't need to be the theater department person that crushes someone's dreams and I well well what was interesting and because i'd never really said to her that i was interested in directing but what she yeah. said to me was i don't want to see this incredible talent you have for storytelling go un you know unsatisfied and so i'm putting together a night of one acts where i'm asking the students to direct the plays and i would like you to do the first one and so she handed me a list of plays that I could choose from. I picked Sorry, Wrong Number because it had a bunch of actors in it. And I love working with actors. And And I directed for the first time. And it was also the last time I ever stepped on stage because once I did it, I knew this that I never needed to be on the other side. That's awesome. So it, I, I guess, you know, some harsh feedback worked out, so to speak. It did. And like I said, let's not judge anyone too harshly. Like everyone's hearts were in the right place. No, it did all work out fine. But, but yeah, I mean, you know, that was, that was, that was, you know, and the funny thing is I look at actors today and I'm like, they all look like me. What the hell? <laughs> That's so funny. So, all right. So you get into directing. Do you, did you go to college for directing or what? what? I did. I did. Yeah. I, I applied to um, several schools and refused to go to any that didn't have a film program right. and then refused to go to any that wouldn't give me any money. And then I ended up with only one option, which was USC, thankfully. And, um, and I ended up at, at USC and, and they brought me into their production program, which is that the Lucas? Oh. It is Lucas. Yeah. Full circle with uh, Star Wars. Full circle. Exactly. Uh, it, I may or may not have mentioned that in my interview. Yeah. <laughs> Worth, it. Uh, Worth it. By the way, the new side note, the new museum they're building over there looks <sighs> incredible. <laughs> I know. They keep asking me for money and I'm like, I feel like you've got enough, but whatever. Yeah, I think you have enough money. I think they use all of these, but, um, all right. So you go to school for it was when you, uh, I'm always curious, like once you started getting into it at that level, at the, in the collegiate level, was it what you thought it was going to be? Or was it, was there a lot of surprises? Did you question it? Or you, once you were at USC, you're like, no, this is exactly what I want. This is amazing. You know, I, I don't think there had been a lot of documentation about what film schools were like. And, and ironically, when I was growing up, like the most famous directors, like famously didn't go to film school or went to, you know, film school and then dropped out because they were so much bigger than it. So like, I didn't really have much 
expectation going into film school other than I knew I didn't know anyone in this town. I knew I didn't know how to meet anyone in this town. I knew at the very least I was going to be spending time with other people like me, which I had never really had growing up. Yeah. So, so that was, that was all I really kind of expected going in. And, and I got all of that. Like I really did. I I really figured out how to make connections. I made like most of the people that I graduated with are still, uh, you know, a bat phone away from, from, you know, putting, you know, getting a favor taken care of. And and it's, and it's really great. And I got to assume being given the school, given the location, like there's a lot of people and like yourself and high up places now in entertainment this many years later. Right. Yeah. I mean, yes. At the same time, there were a lot of people because, you know, there's look, I got a scholarship. I I didn't, I, I'm not one of those, you know, spoiled children that (laughs) USC is so famous for, for producing. But I, you know, I, I, I also went to school with some folks that like, kind of got in, but then didn't really have the temerity to stick with it. And there were a couple of, you know, moments in my career where people dropped out, you know, early on, it was after graduation. If they couldn't get a job right out of school, they left, you know, and then, uh, or, or, or even, you know, at the internship stage, like they struggled to get internships. It was really, you know, they just kind of didn't do what they wanted to do or, or if they were like, I only want to direct. And so I'm going to go make my own things. And all of a sudden you never heard from them again. Yeah. And then, and then the strike in 2008 was another one that, um, that washed out a lot of people. And, and the advice that I had when I graduated from college was, you know, there's there's this tree that is constantly shaking until it isn't. And you've got to be the monkey that holds on throughout the entire time, because when it stops shaking, that's when you're able to climb again. But it's going to be shaking a lot and you've just got to hold on. Given the this year and the recessionary period, I think that is the best advice you could probably get in terms of in a, in a troubled time. It's it's so true too. Like I watch you watch the companies that went into two thousand eight, mm. or people, individuals, whatever that hung on for dear life, figured it out while everything was crazy, or even COVID, yeah. and then yeah. you come out the other side and. The dust settles. A lot of people didn't make it, which means the competition's lower. And now you can continue to climb, as you said, where a lot of people have yeah. found out. That's we're really- also looking at yet another WGA negotiation that yeah. um, has the potential to be really contentious. So, I, you know, I don't know that the tree is, sto- is ready to stop shaking yet, but well, it will yeah, eventually. And that's the thing. It's in it, but it will also always start again. Like my, I saw an interview with Tom Hanks that he goes on about his favorite things. Thing to remember is this too shall pass. Yeah. Good or bad. Good like, or bad. He's good. You're crushing it. This too shall pass. Yeah. Oh, really tough time. There's a strike. There's a recession. Yeah. This too shall pass. Like, yeah. Just gotta remember there's no stasis in life. Like it's just it's so true. Yeah. Change is the only constant. Exactly. So, all right. So you come out of school. Did you easily get a job and that was it? You were, you know, directing movies and you're off the- yeah, I was I was really lucky. My aunt was a high ranking IT executive at the Weather Channel. And so I failed to get an internship the summer of my sophomore year and and my aunt found out about it and reached out to me and she said, Look, if you want to spend a summer in Atlanta with me, I can get you in over here. But she was working really long hours and it was like a twenty hour a week internship. But I didn't have a car, so I would go in at the crack of dawn with her, and then I would go home, you know, right around midnight, and I would just work with whatever department would have me. And I was, you know, I was clocking out of my 20 hours pretty quickly, and then they just kind of said, what do you want to do? And so I got to, you know, interview the Hurricane Hunters. Uh, I got to direct shows and the, you know, the afternoon shows. I got to sit in on development meetings. Uh, I got to write copy. I got to edit tape. Like they let me do everything there because I was around all the time and they knew that I was reliable and I learned a lot. And that you wanted to. Like, yeah. 
I oh do, my gosh, yeah. It's someone that I'm sure you've employed tons of people and I have too. There are the people that come in and they just, they they want to make it. They want to learn. They want to try everything. And there's people that are like, I have to get an internship and I got to get a paycheck and I'm going to do my job. And when yeah. you see someone that really wants something out of it, you, you mo- it's just not common. So everybody wants to give you something too. No, it's so true. I mean, you know, I, I often talk about my jobs over the course of my career as the stuff yeah. that I do and the stuff I get paid for. And like the vast majority of what I do, I would do for free, you know, and then there are a few things that I get paid for and that's how I pay my rent. Perfect. And so, all right. So you go and get that internship. Was that, yeah. did that set you up? Did that, it, what it gave me was a resume, um, that I could actually use to get other internships. You know, people could look at that and say, Oh, this guy knows how to work in a professional environment. You know, that was really all people really cared about. And then I just started sending my resume out to as many people as I could. And one of the resume, one of my resume landed with someone who I had graduated with. And she said, Hey, I saw your resume in this pile. Are you really looking for an internship? And I said, yeah. She said, okay, well, I can get you in over here. And it was a boutique agency, uh, you know, in Century City. Uh-huh. And, um, and I just, I, I just worked with them logging director tapes and, uh, making runs for people and really just kind of being in an environment that was more, you know, related to the Hollywood world. And yeah. then one of the other interns that I was working at, working with at the agency had an internship at Phoenix Pictures with Mike Metavoy. And that was the one that I really wanted because I was just desperate to get into features and, and, and right. work with a producer and you'd be around the development process. And he said, look, I'm going to be leaving that internship at the end of this one. And if you want my spot, I guarantee I can get you in. So he just rolled me into that and I was able to work. And it, that happened to be a really interesting semester because I was only one of three interns and they usually had a large, like a, a greater intern pool. And so I they would only allow two of the interns in development meetings at any given time. And generally that would mean that you were you were going to every third meeting. Um, I was going to almost all of the meetings as a result of, you know, being one of the few interns at the company. And I had just the most amazing time, like sitting in, listening to these people talk about material and the people that they were working with and how they thought about it, how they thought about sales, how they thought about production, all the things that were on their minds in these meetings. And it was just a phenomenal internship. Oh, um, and you basically, I mean, you've been thinking about this. I mean, how old are you at that point? 23? Yeah. No, I mean, at that point I was, uh, I was 21. I would have been 21 because it'd been my junior year. Junior, got it. Oh, okay. So at 21 years old, you've had 11 years, half over half your life. You've been thinking about being mm-hmm. this director. You're now in the room watching how it's done. In the it, room. It sounds like it was everything you dreamed of. It was more, honestly. In fact, there were aspects of it that I didn't even realize were present. I mean, it was, it was crazy to hear people talking about story the way that I talk about story. And the other thing that I found to be really meaningful is these people at the table were doing all the things that I was doing at the film school. So like all of my, co- because here's the other thing is I had at that point already decided that I didn't want to be a director. I loved directing for the theater. I loved the immediacy of it. I love working with the actors. I love kind of designing the presentation, but I got really insecure about the camera lens and just the, the amount of language that goes into how you use that camera lens to tell story. And I, I just, I didn't have as much fun with it. And so I kind of announced to the rest of, you know, my classmates, I'm not, I don't, I don't want to be a director. And that was the most competitive aspect of our program because you could you only really got the opportunity to direct four maybe or I'm sorry there were only four people maybe eight people who would get an opportunity to direct a, fe- uh, a thesis film yep. uh, and I I was saying I didn't want to be one of them and yep. so what what happened as a result of that is the people that I was working with would say hey 
since you're not my competition, would you mind reading my script and telling me what you think? Hey, would you take a look at this cut and help me figure out how to make this edit? Hey, do you, do you anything this weekend? Can you come by and help me, you know, get these shots that I need for my, for my short? And I loved doing it because I love working with people. And again, like I grew up kind of lonely. And so being around people that I really enjoyed spending time with that I connected to was valuable. Yeah. I was just doing it because I enjoyed it. And then I'm sitting in this room at, at Phoenix Pictures and I'm looking around and I'm realizing, oh my God, these people are doing what I'm doing for free and they're getting paid for it. And that was kind of where I made my decision that I wanted to be a producer. Got it. That's awesome. And so what was the path from there? You finished school, but... Yeah, I finished school and then um, I actually, I, I met this guy, Basil Iwanek. Uh, he's the principal at this company, Thunder Road Pictures. And um, Basil was running a, a now defunct financing slash mini studio called uh, Intermedia. And Intermedia was, um, was producing this film uh, called Basic that had John Travolta, and Sam Jackson in it. And um, we had been working on that film at uh, Phoenix Pictures. And so uh, Basil came in to speak to our class about the movie. And I pulled him aside afterwards. And I was like, hey, I, I was an intern at Phoenix Pictures. You know, we, we, we worked on this. And I started talking to him about my experience working on it. And he loved hearing me talk about it. And he said, why don't you come into my office on Tuesday? And I said, oh, sure. And so I showed up. He sat me down. We had a really long conversation. Then he said, I'd love for you to be working here. I don't have any jobs available, but I've got another internship. Would you be willing to do that? And I was like, absolutely. So I just took another free internship, yeah. um, went and worked uh, at Intermedia with Basil, met a couple of other executives there. Um, one of them took a shine to me and was best friends with this producer over at this company, C2 Pictures, which did all of the Terminator movies. And uh, I loved Terminator growing up. And so he said, hey, they're looking for a new assistant. Do you want the gig? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, okay, well, he's going on maternity leave or not maternity leave. Sorry. He's going on his honeymoon and uh, doesn't want to have to interview anybody. So if you want the job, it's yours. So I ended up getting this job without actually interviewing for it and didn't meet the guy until he came back from his honeymoon. Um, and you just, and did you do any research on who am I about to be working for? You were just like, Fuck yeah. It. Yeah, and he he was a good dude. You know, he 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 had some success independently as a producer, then came over there as, a, as an executive. That can go. It can go. Yeah, it can go one. It can go lots of different ways. No, I actually really loved working with him, but he also only stuck around for about three months, and then he got fired. And so now here I was working at this company for I had been working for a guy who didn't really know who I was before I started, and then he yeah. got fired, and I'm looking around going, "Oh dear God, what do I do now?" And luckily, the the incoming guy didn't have an assistant and took me under his wing, and we ended up working together for two and a half years. Oh, that's amazing. And so yeah, it's a great what, experience. what was the, ex I was going to say, what was that experience like working as the assistant there was again, everything you thought it would be just exposure to everything you wanted. It was nothing I thought it was going to be. It okay. was, um, you know, the experience of working with my boss, who, James Middleton was great because he really, I really got kind of my first mentor in the industry with him, but working at C2 was a nightmare, um, because the two principals were infamous for causing a ton of trouble in Hollywood over their, you know, 20, 30 year career, but they also revolutionized, revolutionized the way that movies were made. You know, they, they're, they're the ones who popularized, you know, selling the rights in multiple 
multiple territories um, and producing it for a fraction of that so that like you're already making money before you've even rolled you know a frame of film that that's how they made their their fortune and uh, and then they spent that fortune you know acquiring talent and bringing talent into their folds and yeah. kind of broke the you know the the salaries for most of the a-list stars in Hollywood I mean they were they people hated them a lot yeah. and when they stopped having the leverage and power that they used to have it was really hard to get phone calls answered so you know we were working on Terminator 3 and then Terminator 4 and then Basic Instinct 2 and I was getting really frustrated working on movies with numbers in the titles and wanted to do something original and and just really struggled we really struggled for a long two and a half years we were on this treadmill trying to get other things going just no one would pick up the phone got oh so you were doing that because you couldn't get a lot of good responses so you just went with what you can execute on yourself Uh, I mean yes you know look there's low hanging fruit you know people wanted more Terminator movies so we made them you know we I think there was a lawsuit with MGM that necessitated we had to either make Basic Instinct 2 or pay Sharon Stone something like 11 million dollars and they decided that it was less expensive to just make the movie and so we did like they we were making everything that we possibly could because we wanted we needed to but we had original stuff that we wanted to make just nobody wanted it got it and so what ended up causing you to leave well there it was a combination of things I I brought in a number of projects that I was able to get some some attention for and they didn't want to were able to go get your own projects uh, yeah, I mean, at that point, I was uh, they they m- promoted me to a low level development executive, and what's one of the things that's very common is what they'll do is they'll make you a low level development executive, and then you'll still answer the phones and make every all the, do all the scheduling, and so you're really just an assistant with a business card. But like, yeah. I'm assistant with a business card, yeah. like that's great. I just need to get yeah. into the room, and so I I had brought in these projects and um the scripts that I really thought were great and special, and they just kept saying no, and then I would one by one watch those scripts get bought and made and released and then box office hits and i'm sitting there watching this happen going i don't suck at this can you share that oh yeah i mean there was one the strangers by you know i think his name was brian bertino i think was the writer's name i remember the movie there was a there was this project do you, you know darren lynn boosman who who uh directed saw two and then kind of became the producer overseeing all the Saw movies. I think he directed several after that as well. He wrote a script called The Desperate that I absolutely loved. And it had, and I read it right when the trailer for Saw came out. And so like the movie hadn't been released, but I watched that trailer and it scared the shit out of me. And I thought to myself, this is going to be the new thing in, in, in horror films. And then I brought it to the team and they said, Oh no, we don't do horror here. We do big blockbuster movies. We don't do horror. And then Saw came out and made a billion dollars and they were like, maybe we should get into horror. And I was like, I got the script here. We should take a look at. And they did. And Finally, we're like, yeah, let's let's chase this down. And then when I called Darren's agent, he said, oh, yeah, we already sold that. And then uh, and I said, well, to who? And he said, well, I, you know, I, I can't tell you, but it'll be in the trades tomorrow. And then I read the trades and it's the announcement that Darren Lynn Boosman has been hired to write and direct the second Saw film. So then I called the agent back and I was like, did they just take his script and turn it into Saw 2? And he goes, yeah, basically that's what they did. So I just, these kinds of things were happening to me over and over again. And I just got really frustrated. And, and then simultaneously we started developing a TV series based in the world of Terminator called the Sarah Connor Chronicles that ultimately was written and, and uh, developed by Josh Friedman. And it went on to star Lena Headey. 
And I love that process. I love working on that, on that show with them. And I hadn't really dipped my toe into TV as a, you know, I mean, I loved watching it, but I hadn't really done it before. And that was a, that was a really eye opening experience. So, um, I ended up becoming close to the agent who represented the Terminator rights for us. Yeah. And when she was looking for a new assistant, I called her up and I said, I know you're going to tell me that I'm overqualified for this, but, um, I really want to learn TV and I think that you can teach it to me. Would you be willing to hire me? And she brought me in for a meeting and we talked about it and she, she hired me. And I work for her for almost a year. Wow. That's awesome. And so, and did you work, was it, uh, again, I'm going to keep asking this, but was that what you hoped it was? Was that you jumped in? You're like, oh, this is what TV's about. It was the worst year of my life. Wow. Okay. There you go. Yeah. It was terrible. It was really awful. I, uh, I was working really long hours for very little money. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the relationship that I had with the agents eroded over the course of that year pretty, pretty aggressively. And I just, I was just not happy, but, but I loved her clients. I, I was learning a lot about TV. And one of the crazy things that, that I thought was actually kind of fortuitous for me, but it was, you know, it was at a time where television was becoming more interesting, I think, to people who weren't used to working in TV. Um, you had like Glenn Close was doing The Shield. You know, Sopranos was one of the most talked about, you know, entertainment experiences for, you know, in years. The West Wing was on network TV. Lost was on network TV. 24 was on network TV. Six Feet Under was out. Like, it was insane the kinds of content that you're getting out of TV. And yep. feature people were interested in going into that world, but they hadn't before. And the agents in features hadn't really understood TV before. The TV agents didn't really understand features, but I was this guy who had come from the feature world and was learning television and I was bilingual. I could speak both languages. And so I was getting called into people's offices as they were talking through deals or or trying to have a conversation with their, with their client. And I was just asked to interpret and to help them understand what was being, you know, what was being required of, uh, you know, some of these deal negotiations. And I became valuable and I got to know a bunch of agents at the agency and it was really those relationships that led to me getting my next job, which was working for an executive at Warner Brothers in television, which which was I mean, it was it was a long path to something that had kind of been a very important goal for me. I loved Warner Brothers in general. I heard so many great things about it. I really wanted to be on a lot. Like I said, I loved the West Wing. You know, there was so many reasons why Warner Brothers was very attractive to me. And um, I ended up meeting with this executive who I just clicked with. And uh, and again, we ended up working together for two and a half years. And what kind of what position did you take at Warner Brothers? I, I was another assistant gig. I mean, if there's a if there is a message to get out to your people it's you can be an assistant for a really long time i think uh when i got into you when i got into warner brothers i'm i think i was 27 28 but and you but you had been working in the industry for like honestly at that point seven years give or take yeah six six years it's about six years i've been doing it and yeah it would i mean i mean not counting the internships right you know but like counting the internships had been about almost you know eight or nine years but, but, you know, yeah, I, and, and, and I was, and I, that was the amount of time that I was, oh, you know what? Actually, let me take that back. I think when I came to Warner Brothers, it had been, I think I was 26 when I went to Warner Brothers because I was at Warner Brothers for two and a half years before I got promoted as an executive. But I went in there as an assistant, yeah. you know, and I ended up spending about six years as an assistant before yeah. I got, you know, the promotion. Yeah. And um, cause yeah, you see a lot of people, like there's a lot of instant gratification sort of chasing these days that putting in the work and putting the time people, I, I hear the rhetoric is 
like that's being taken advantage of is the line that I hear these days. It's like to put in the work means that they're being taken advantage of. And so it's, it's someone that also grinded it out before, you know, before I actually got to this place. It's like, yeah, interesting. I think that's true. I, I will say there are examples of people being taken advantage of. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to discount that reaction either, but for sure, you know, in my situation, I got a lot out of the work that I was putting in. It just yeah. wasn't always money. And I think yeah. that might be the determination is if you're not getting anything out of this. Like literally the day to day, like if you're, if you're just doing what you're doing, grinding your soul into the ground, waiting yeah. for someone to lift you up and put you where you're supposed to be, you're probably being taken advantage of. Yeah. But if you're, but if your only complaint is that you're not making enough money, but you're still getting access to things and you're learning a lot and you're around people that you really love and you're doing things that you really care about. I don't think that's being taken advantage of at all. And, and generally speaking, that was my experience. Yeah, love that. And so you two and a half years there, you get a promotion to what exactly? I was promoted to manager of current programming. You know, okay. so I I spent uh, a year in current programming as an assistant working for my executive and then a year and a half in development when she moved into that department. And then off of her desk, and and honestly, like this was out of the strike. This was in two thousand eight and or two thousand nine. It was it was when the strike ended. It was shortly after the strike ended. I I was invited to have a fireside chat with Peter Roth, who was the you know the president of Warner Brothers at the time, and um and we just sat and talked for an hour. And at the end, he said, "If I had a magic wand, it could place you in any department in this company. What would it be?" And I said, "I'd love to work at." in current programming. I feel like that's a great baseline for anything that I'd want to do for the rest of my career. And, and I, and I think that I've still got a lot to learn there. And he said, okay. And literally the next day I had an offer letter on my desk. That's awesome. Got to, I mean, I just had this conversation earlier, like people discount how much someone that wants to be there and someone, uh, that's motivated. Like I, I just want to find a place for you kind of thing. Like as a business owner myself, with yeah. 100 employees, it's like when I have someone that's like, I really want to do this and I'm passionate about it and it falls within anything I can control. All I want to do is make that happen for them. Cause it's really hard to find that kind of passion. Yeah. You that's that. the quality of a great leader. Yeah. The thing that you just described, the, you know, the ability to recognize, recognize that the talent of your team is probably the greatest asset that you have. Oh yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. You have to. And be, uh, cause honestly, good or bad, that is what, you got like that's yeah. what makes a company function and some more than others but yeah. when you're talking about creative industry like you have to yeah and so stepping into uh that position were you ready for it did you feel prepared for what you were jumping into or, or were you kind of caught off guard you know there are a lot of safeguards at major studios like warner brothers like i i was never really put in a position that early on where i could fail yeah. um and i had you know i had partners in the other executives that i was working with i wasn't on any one show by myself and very rarely did i ever find myself in a situation where i had to make a decision without you know weighing in with other people beforehand yeah. um but i but i did it did end up I, I ended up I ended up getting a lot more responsibility pretty quickly um, in that job. And I was just like, I, I have to say that I was I was very, very I have to say this. I was so lucky. And I know this because I, I've worked at a number of companies, you know, even since that initial time when I was at Warner Brothers. Um, I've worked with other companies as an executive at Warner Brothers or, you know, I spent a couple of years as, as an executive at Lionsgate. Yep. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm an executive and running a company now and I work with a lot of people and the people that reached out and tapped me 
and gave me the opportunities that they gave me are incredibly rare. And yeah. I was really, really lucky to come across those people. But, um, you know, one of them was Peter Roth. One of them was, you know, Clancy Collins White, who is, you know, running creative over at Warner Brothers now. One of them was Melinda Hagee, who was the head of current programming for many years. One of them was, is Susan Rovner, who's over running NBC now. All of these people just kind of like took me under their wings. Lynn Goldstein, who is an independent producer himself right now, like these people took me under their wings and said, I like you. I see something special in you. I want to talk to you about it. Brett Paul, who is president of Warner Brothers now, like these are people that were been, been really meaningful, valuable resources to me and uh and and so i i got a lot of opportunities because of that got it and yeah i mean being a part of it like i, I think people discounting a part of a great organization like that where that has a culture of helping each other out it's just so huge and it's huge it's okay with like i know so you just mentioned you left for a couple years after that to go to mm-hmm. Miami and then went back right i did yeah that's true yeah um okay, i uh yeah. i had reached a point at warner brothers where i wasn't growing anymore Mm-hmm. Um, and I gave it, I gave it a full contract. You know, I, I had a, I had a, a, um, a three year contract. I signed that contract and I said, okay, if I don't feel like I'm growing at the end of this contract, then I'm going to have to start looking for a new job. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't, it was, and I'm not saying this is like a negative to the company or to anything else that was going on. I was just like, I was just waiting for something new to learn. And as I was going through the job, I realized I just wasn't learning anything anymore. And it made the job really easy. And, 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 you know, the, the fact of the matter is, you know, I, I was well compensated for the time that I was putting in and I was enjoying everything that I was working on and the people that I was working with. But I just felt like I was too young and too early in my career to get kind of stuck. And yeah. I was starting to feel stuck. So I reached out to a, a colleague of mine who was a producer at the John Wells company for a while and had gone to run creative for Lionsgate. Mm-hmm. And she had been a mentor of mine. You know, I had produced some short films on the side and had reached out to her for advice on like how to manage certain, you know, sensitive talent issues. Yeah. And so she was always a really great resource. And I reached out to her and I said, look, I've never looked for a job as an executive before and I don't know where to start. What's my first step? And she said, don't look for a job as an executive. Come work for me. And I was like, are you serious? She was like, yeah. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's uh, Chris Selleck. Got it. Cool. Yeah, she's now a um, she's now a she's now a producer again, working on the oh what, what, what it's completely left my mind. But um, oh, the Powers, the Powers franchise. She's working on uh, all those all the, the the Powers projects. But but Chris, uh, you know, kind of brought me that, and and I had already told the president of her studio, Peter Roth, and the head of current programming that I was looking for an opportunity to grow. And they were like, well, you know, go look and see if you can find something that looks like that. If not, please stay here. And yep. and then I came back to them. And I said, so they're offering me a department head position here. Can I, you know, I, I got I kind of feel like I have to take it. And I went and I learned a lot. And one of the things that, that made Lionsgate so valuable to me is I wanted to work in another independent studio because I wanted to have the opportunity to really be, um, you know, a producer on our projects, but also they were doing a lot of streaming and they were doing a lot of cable and Warner Brothers wasn't really in that business yet. Um, and so I was making new contacts all over the place and also learning new aspects of the business because we were making deals with networks that had another, never had a footprint for scripted programming before. Yep. And we were, you know, pioneers. And so I got to really be a pioneer in the industry for a couple of years. And then, uh, and then the company wasn't producing as much in development as they had been before. And I was running current programming. And when you don't have a lot to develop, you don't really need a head of current programming. And so I got let go and, um, and was climbing a volcano. 
Did you mm. overlap with Joe Drake there? That name sounds familiar, but I don't think he I knew Joe. President. He sold his company to Lionsgate, then was president for a while, then he left and started Good Universe, and then they bought it again, and he, he's now back running. Yeah. Okay. Yes. 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 I did that. That yeah. name does ring a bell. That's yeah. Right. We never worked together, but yes, I do. I do remember that now. Yeah. Awesome. Dude, what about Julie Ehrman? Oh yeah. Oh god. Yes. Oh yeah. Julie. Julie's one of my favorite people. I love Julie. I invested in Angel City. We've got no a- way. Oh, that's great. Yeah, no, Julie's Julie's an incredible person. Like, and and one of the people that I stayed in contact with after I left Lionsgate. I made I made quite a few friends while I was there that that have been really meaningful to me. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and Julie's one of them. Yeah, she um, had a project there at one point. So it was. Oh, really? Yeah, a little marketing. <laughs> <laughs> very cool. Very cool. So, um, uh, all right. So you, you then, so Lionsgate is climbing a volcano. you got out. Did- oh yeah. Yeah. I got out and I was climbing a volcano with my girlfriend in Hawaii because oh, I never, I thought you meant literally, like- literally climbing a volcano because I got, uh, you know, you know, about to blow. <laughs> yeah. No. Interesting though. Interesting. But no, that's not what I meant. Um, no, I was, uh, I, you know, when you, when you're unemployed, you can take advantage of those, you know, last minute flight deals. And there was like a round trip ticket to Hawaii for 150 bucks. And I said, let's do it. And so we went to Hawaii and I was climbing a volcano when I got a phone call from my old boss at Warner Brothers. And she said, I don't think that you would ever want to come back. But I am looking for somebody like you, and I thought maybe you might know someone who would be interested in this. And I said, actually, I might be interested in this. This would be interesting to me because at that point, you know, the AT&T merger had been announced. They hadn't gone through yet, but they were starting the purchasing process, and they were getting into more of the streaming and cable business. And I actually had something to bring to the table because I'd been doing a lot of that stuff. And I felt like this was another opportunity to grow. And I was right. I came back to Warner Brothers, and it was like a whole new company and uh and i and i was and i was able to really make it take advantage of of that new environment and so how long because i know you're doing your own thing now how long did you Uh, i was there for oh gosh four years i was there for four years and uh and it was in the midst of my fourth year that the at&t merger had been completed and then the discovery merger had been had begun and I was looking around, realizing I did not want to go through another. I just didn't want to go through that process again. It was so painful. Three years. I learned. I learned a lot. I don't regret a single decision that I made, but yeah. I could not go through that again. Makes sense. And at least not full, full hearted. You know. Yeah. So I um. So I I kept my eyes open and I was looking for things and I was telling people that I was you know not super super duper happy but but also very curious because we had a new president coming in we had a new department head coming in and I was I was curious to know what was going to happen next but but more uh, what's the opposite of cautiously optimistic like I was I was I was aggressively pessimistic <laughs> maybe like or or maybe like cautiously pessimistic like I don't know like I was there was a part of me that was like like I was I didn't have pessimistic maybe yeah, yeah. it's like I didn't have high hopes but I had hopes, you know, I was very interested in seeing what was going to happen next. And, uh, and then I got a call from one of my closest friends in this business, someone that I had been assistance with going all the way back to my first job at, in, in features, you know, and so we're talking about 15, almost 15 years earlier, we had been, you know, we would sit on his porch drinking whiskey, talking about how wouldn't it be cool if we had a production company together and we'd worked together a number of times over the course of our careers 
in different capacities. He decided he wanted to become a writer. I decided I wanted to become an executive. I helped him with his application to the Warner Brothers Writers Workshop. And then when he got staffed, he helped me with, you know, staffing on my shows and, you know, helped me, helping me find great writers. Um, and I helped him find great writers. And then he got an opportunity to run his first TV series and, and it ended up being the sh- one of the shows that I worked on at Warner Brothers. And, uh, and so I, I begged him to pick my show and that show was Lucifer and the guy was Joe Henderson and, and he turned Lucifer into this international blockbuster hit TV series that started at Fox and then moved to Netflix. And, and when he was at Netflix, Netflix realized what an incredible star writer and producer he was and yep. decided they wanted to put him under an overall deal. And, but he wasn't really kind of satisfied with a traditional production company, you know, arrangement. He had these two other writers, Georgia Lee and Matt Owens, uh, both of them incredibly talented writers and showrunners in their own right. And his vision for a production company was, you know, what if it was less a production company and more a writer's consortium? And so they teamed up as, you know, three distinct showrunners and built this company called Magic Quilt Productions. And they invited me to join and run the company for them. So you're leading up the company, or I guess what is their involvement versus yours? Like, what does it mean to run the company for them? So you know, they're writers and showrunners and the heads. You know, they you know the company doesn't really do anything without their sign off and approval. Yep. But I think in a lot of ways, I'm setting the agenda and yep. and and I'm bringing in the majority of the projects that we're considering. And then you know, I'm building the relationships that our company is going to have with the talent and, and and buyers around town, so that we can kind of make the stuff. That we love the most, and yep. over the course of our first year, we we've actually set up you know a few projects that we're really really excited about that I can't talk too much about, but that we're really excited about, and uh, with some great uh, other partners that we're working with that I think uh, are, are going to be really lucrative for everyone involved, including Netflix, who is who has you know picked up four of the projects that we've uh, that we've taken out already. Um, been so, a year? Yeah, for over the last year. Impressive. <laughs> yeah. So, so year two, year two, I've got a lot of goals, but uh, among them is to start bringing in some writers from the outside and, and start developing some outside ideas for us. But yeah. I was going to, my next question was going to be what's next. So yeah. it's really start to develop that, which is awesome. And also uh, another question for you is, is this what you thought it was like going back to that kid in high school? Like, do you, now that you're in it, like you are at the pinnacle of a career. I mean, I guess, again, if you want to end up owning and not operating, you can get there, but like you've reached that point of success here. Is this what you hoped it was? Are you just passionately excited about where you ended up? Because I do know that a lot of times because it takes so much along the way, you sometimes that perspective is hard to keep up of like, look where I ended up. But how do you feel about it now? I'm I'm doing my dream. I'm living my dream. I Amazing. really am. Yeah. I mean, and honestly, going back to that kid who was sitting in his room reading, you know, biographies about Steven Spielberg and and Brandon Tartikoff's autobiography, which I had highlighted and dog-eared to the point where pages were falling out of it. Like that guy who was following those people believing that that's that you could you could just love telling stories and that would be enough. And coming out to this industry and, and really kind of being, having that challenged over and over and over again. What I found was that if I didn't give up that belief that loving this could be enough, then I probably wouldn't have found the other people that also believed that loving this was enough. 
And those were the people that really helped me. And they're the people that I surround myself with now. And so now when I talk about this being my dream job, I'm talking about it because it literally is me working with all of the people that I dreamed existed when mm -hmm. I was growing up. And now we're doing the stuff that I've always wanted to do. And it's, you know, I, I really, if you, if you can achieve that in some way at any point in your lives, I would say do it. <laughs> like if you can, if you can do the thing that you always wanted to do with people that you love doing it with, it doesn't get any better than that. It really doesn't. Love it. And so last question for me, for someone trying to pursue their dreams as someone that figured this out really early, what's one piece of advice you either wish you got or you did get to help you get along the way? That, you know, here, I, I, yeah, I got some really great advice on that. And, and I think it's, yeah. Uh, so the advice that I got was never pass up a good opportunity, even if it's not the opportunity you're looking for. You know, I never, I didn't think that I was going to go into TV. Like I said, I started out wanting to be a director and then I just wanted to be in features and I want to be a feature producer. And then, you know, I found myself in television and frankly, I've never wanted to go back. You know, it's not, you know, I've, I still, I, I, I love the fact that I'm at a company now where I can kind of dip my toe into everything and we are, but you know, I'm so thrilled that I got my experience in TV and I know so many people that probably wouldn't have pursued that because it wasn't the thing that they were looking for. And you can't, you got to leave room for surprises in your life or else you don't get to experience the magic because that's where the magic lives. And then the, the second piece of advice that I got was how to recognize a great opportunity. I give this to everyone, every, every one of my mentees that I talk to, I give this advice to, and, and I, there hasn't been a single person that hasn't come back to me later and said, you saved my life. You recognize a good opportunity by using three criteria, the people you're working with, the money you're going to be making, and the work that you're going to be doing. Mm -hmm. If you can match any two out of three to the things that you want out of a job, that's a good opportunity. If you can match all three, it's a great opportunity to don't pass it up. And so like for me, the, the TV thing was an opportunity to work with people that I wanted to work with. And I was going to be, you know, I was going to be making more money than I was at the agency. Um, right. It wasn't exactly the work that I wanted to do. I wanted to be in development. I didn't want to be in current programming, but it, but it was close enough. It was close yeah. enough. And I knew I was going to enjoy the people that I was working with. And then the thing that happened was I fell in love with current and then yeah. I ended up working in development eventually anyway, and yeah. then still wanted to go back to current. And so yeah. it's like, you know, you just, you got to leave room for magic. I love that. Honestly, do this a lot, but this has been inspiring. So Chad, thank you so uh, much for coming on Hawk Talk. No, I really appreciate the invitation, Eric. Thank you. Of course. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.